we're going to just jump right into the sermon this morning. And I have to start by telling you that these words of scripture and I, we fought this week. Dale contacted me about a week ago and asked me to preach. And I said, yes. And then I sat down and I read the scripture and almost immediately I felt disconnected. And we began like fighting, like I feel a little roughed up after these verses. Um, and it, isn't because that they're really difficult to understand. They don't have a ton of huge, crazy theological implications in them. It isn't because it's a really lengthy passage of scripture. It's just nine verses. It's not even like a full round 10 verses. Um, and I read them over and over. I studied them. I studied commentaries. I looked up Greek and Latin words and I journaled about it. I spoke to my husband about it. But mostly, I sat at my desk and I'd type a few words, and then I'd get up, and I'd pout and stalk around my house, and then I would just repeat that process over and over and over again. And there was one night where I was just beginning to feel honestly distraught. I wasn't connecting to these words, and I didn't know why, and I didn't know what I was going to come and tell you this morning, and that was really making me feel anxious, and I just couldn't find my way into this scripture. And so it's later in the evening, and I go downstairs into the basement. I'm just pacing back and forth, kind of hoping that maybe movement somehow will stir up some juices or thoughts or something in me, and I'm kind of pacing back and forth. I'm kind of crying a little bit. Like like I said, I'm, I'm beginning to be distressed. This is, for some reason, this sermon was difficult for me to come to and to write. And so finally I stop and I stare at a bookshelf that we have. And I'm hoping desperately that God will like shine a light on a book and it will provide inspiration for me and I will be inspired and I will know everything I'm supposed to say and think and feel about these words that he's included in his holy scripture. And so I'm in all of that mindset and I've got my back to the room basically. And so I don't hear my daughter, my 12 year old daughter come down the stairs down a hallway and across a room. I don't hear any of that. And I don't hear her say, well, I don't hear her until she says, good night, mom, which completely terrifies me. My memory is that it happened like in little in short increments. Like I turn around to face her. I scream. I'm actually holding a book. I whack her on the arm. I think one time she says three times, I whack her on the arm with a book. And then I stare at her and I realize I've just hit her with the book and I feel bad that I've hit her with the book. So then I grab her arm and I say, what are you doing down here? Mostly just because I'm terrified and I'm freaked out. And she says, I just came down to tell you good night. And then we laugh and I hugged her and kissed her and told her I was sorry that I hit her with the book. And because she's kind. She mostly is just making fun of me for responding in that way to the simple phrase, good night, mom, as she should totally make fun of me for the rest of my life about this moment when her mother hit her with a book. Um, But I share with you this very silly, silly story to share with you that it can be hard and difficult to bring ourselves to these holy words of scripture that we have. And it can be difficult knowing that sometimes you're in the position of having to stand up front and share that journey out loud with others. The title of the section of verses that Dale gave me to study is titled, The Unbelief of the People. So it's not a very fun title. And the verses aren't so much fun either. And it's not that scripture always needs to be fun, because I don't believe that. 
but I do like it when there are birds or flowers or something in the scripture for me to study and really kind of dig my teeth into because often, at least for me, that provides a new way into scripture for me. And it helps make the scripture come alive in a new way for me or in a different way than it ever has before. And that wasn't happening for me with these particular verses. And I think part of the reason that these verses and I fought with each other, or probably more like I fought with them this week, is that being an unbeliever, which is what these verses seem to be all about, was one of the worst things that I used to think a person could be. Being raised in a Christian home, attending church every week, I personally don't ever remember not believing in Jesus. Belief in Jesus seemed as natural as breathing It seemed as normal and as everyday as making your bed. And there's a lot of beauty in that. A lot of beauty in always having God as part of your life. But there's some shadow as well. There always is. There's always a paradox. Both and a little bit of beauty, a little bit of shadow. And part of my shadow with my Christian faith is this anxiety of not believing. That has been a part of my faith for a very long time. Because see, when I was a little girl and a teenager and when I went to my Christian college, it was taught to me that it was of utmost importance to be a believer. Because it was a matter of eternal importance to be a believer. And so because of that weight, I always worried that maybe I didn't believe enough or I didn't believe quite right somehow or something. Or maybe because sometimes I had some questions Maybe that was a sign to me that I, that I didn't believe somehow, or maybe because sometimes I was bored in church or something, I don't know, that, that maybe that meant something and it meant I didn't believe. And see, that was really disturbing to me because I wanted to believe. I wanted to believe all the time with all of myself. And verses like this, when they were read to me or when I read them or they were taught to me, they became part of my anxiety. They only exacerbated all of my worries that were already present in my crazy brain. I worried that like the scripture says, maybe my heart was hardened. Maybe somehow I was one of those people that was unable to see Jesus and his signs, even though he was right there in front of me. And I know now that I wasn't the only kid or teenager or young adult that had these anxieties. My husband had similar thoughts in his Christian upbringing as well. And I now have many friends, male and female, of varying ages who share these anxieties, especially if they grew up in the church. Now, that's a comfort to me as an adult in this moment, that I'm not the only one that felt those feelings and had those thoughts. But it still makes me ask the question, why were so many of us so anxious about believing, believing enough, so scared about that. And I think it is exactly because of the importance and the weight that is placed on belief. It's weight that these nine verses that we heard just a minute ago, that they were, that feels like these nine verses place also on belief. Believing, belief, It really does seem like it's the most important thing, and especially to John, right, the author of the gospel, right? John does everything in his gospel in order to receive all of your belief 
about the light and life in this world through Jesus Christ. And John does this because he is so distressed that as he writes in verse 37, although he, Jesus, had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him. And John can't bear that. He cannot understand why or how a person could witness Jesus in the flesh, could see a miracle, and could still not believe. I think that's why John wrote his gospel. I think it's why John spent so much time carefully choosing words and stories with precision in order to curate his experience of the cosmic and incarnational Christ. And in John's gospel, we do get such lovely glimpses into Jesus. The wedding at Cana, his conversation with the woman at the well, his miracles, his healings, and all of that, all of those stories in which they're meant to entice all of us into believing. And it isn't any wonder that the church took John's words to heart and followed his example and put belief as this number one priority and that the church has for so many, 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 many years pushed their effort into making sure that people have the opportunity to hear about Jesus and make the choice to believe in him. And it isn't that the church got it wrong, but it is that they didn't get it quite right either. And to show you what I mean, I need you to take a little trip with me. A trip back into history of two Greek words, okay? For their road has been very, very long. And I feel certain that if we travel this road with them for a very short time, that it has the power to change our eyes and we'll have a new way to read and see the world. And that has the power to change us at our core. And then that has the power to change the world. So... Travel with me for a moment all the way back to the 4th century, okay? Where we're going to meet St. Jerome, who is the man who will translate the New Testament from its original Greek into Latin, okay? And Jerome's going to find two words in the New Testament over and over and over again. He will see a noun, pistis, and he will see a verb, pistuo. Okay, you can just remember them as like the two P words. Okay, and both of these words, even though one's a noun and one's a verb, they both mean the same kind of concepts loyalty, trust, engagement, commitment. Okay, and when St. Jerome comes to these words, he's going to see this noun, pistis, and he's going to change it into fides, which means loyalty. Okay, and when he sees this verb, pistuo, Jerome's going to use the Latin verb credo, which is actually derived from the words cordo, and it means I give my heart, okay? And those words that Jerome changed from Greek into Latin, they will remain unchanged from the 4th century until the 17th century, okay? Until 1611, And in 1611, the Bible was finished being translated into English, into the King James Version. And for the first time ever, the words, I believe, were to be used in place of the two Latin words, in place of those two first Greek words, okay? But in 1611, the phrase, I believe, or the word belief, it doesn't mean what it means to us today. 
So we kind of have to zero in now, right, into 17th century Middle English language, okay? And we have to look at what the word beloved meant. And I'm making up that pronunciation because for the life of me and Google wasn't to help, I could not figure out how to say this Middle English word. So if any of you know and are an expert in Middle English please come find me and I will correct myself. But it doesn't matter the pronunciation. What matters is that there is this Middle English word being used, okay? And it meant to prize, to value, to hold dear, okay? And that was a word that was belief, that has become our word belief, all right? It's actually related to old Germanic words, which means to love, beloved, to value, to to love something, And so when we look at Middle English and we kind of think about that word and we kind of think about loyalty as well and socially what was going on in England, we see that the concept of belief was to have loyalty to a person to whom one is bound in promise or in duty. So we've started with Greek concepts of loyalty, engagement, and commitment. And we move to Latin words, meaning loyalty, and I give my heart. I think of that as the engagement part from those Greek words. And then we move to the English words, belief. And when you come upon the word belief or I believe in the New Testament, it's usually going to, in the original Greek, be one of those first two P words that I mentioned earlier, okay? And those are the words we've been talking about, all the, the, basically the two different huge translations that we've had. So now you can see how far these words have come in concept and in meaning, okay? And these are the words, again, that John used in his gospel. And really more than any other, I think you can see how the word loyalty, this concept of loyalty has really affected the history and the translation of these words. It's actually in each of the translations that I mentioned, in the Greek, in the Latin, and in the English. And so when people saw the word belief or believe for hundreds of years, it's a great assumption that they were thinking of the concept of loyalty, having loyalty, Showing loyalty to someone to whom you're connected to by a promise or by a duty. And it actually wasn't until the late 17th century that philosophers and scientists were the first people to use the word belief to describe an intellectual assent, a thought, okay? And it actually wasn't really until the 19th century where belief was finally taken away from the giving of one's heart and the concept of loyalty, and really was placed firmly just to live in the mind, a thought, to give a mental assent to a concept. But I hope you can see how a concept like loyalty, when you think of being loyal to someone, is very different than just thinking a thought. Okay, Karen Armstrong, who's a terrific writer and historian, she puts it this way. Jesus was not asking people to believe in his divinity. He was asking for commitment. He wanted disciples who would engage with his mission, give all they had to the poor, feed the hungry, refuse to be hampered by family ties, abandon their pride, lay aside their self-importance and sense of entitlement. They must spread the good news of the kingdom to everyone in Israel, even the prostitutes and tax collectors, and live compassionate lives. 
So do you see that belief like that was so big that it would spill out of the mind, out of your heart and into your hands and over onto tax collectors and prostitutes? John writes in his gospel that Jesus says, actually John writes that Jesus cries aloud these words. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. See, Jesus isn't drawing attention to himself. He says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He takes our gaze that's on him and he directs it off of him onto something even bigger than himself. Jesus fixes our gaze on God, on divinity itself, on the divine love that can and will move mountains and change people. See, Jesus wants us so desperately to see him because then he knows we will see God and seeing God has the power to change our unbelief, to change our 21st century idea of belief and move it into biblical belief, which was a full body commitment to loving God and loving others. And so while loyalty is a noun, it's a thing we can have, it's a verb as well, right? It definitely affects our actions, our words, our choices, and our thoughts. And so with belief too, it's not just a noun that we hold onto with our minds only. It is both noun and verb, thought and action, all derived from looking at Jesus and seeing God. And so perhaps I would have experienced less anxiety and more belief had I, as a younger person, been shown and taught that belief lived in my heart and my hands as well as in my mind. What does it change for you to take belief out of your brain and make it bigger than a thought? Does it change how you engage with God? Does it change how you engage with others? I'm curious to know what it would be like for you to believe in new ways with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your mind. I do hope you choose to make this kind of belief a part of your spiritual journey. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we are grateful for our minds, our hearts, our bodies that are all one connected piece that you in your mystery and your love have made. Help us to use all of them to love you more and love others more. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.